Welcome to The Drummer's Pathway, the podcast about music, life, and the creative process. Hello, I'm Michael Scott, and welcome to The Drummer's Pathway podcast. When we are young, we often have a vision of what it would be like to pursue a career in our chosen fields. But despite our active pursuits to work towards obtaining those experiences, we often find that it may not always fulfill us in the ways that we expected. Many of us may choose to walk away and follow a different path, or we can learn to pivot and adjust and therefore find our successes in ways that, although may not have been our original intention, ultimately becomes the outlet for which we find our artistic and personal fulfillment. My guest today is Tim Buell, who as a Nashville-based drummer has toured with several artists including Cody Fry, Gloriana, Jonna Kramer, Jared Neiman, and Remedy Drive. He also records drums for clients all over the world from both his home studio as well as at other Nashville-based studios. In addition to touring and recording, Tim is passionate about creating educational resources through the courses and ebooks available on his website and maintains a roster of private students both virtually and in person at his studio in Nashville. Tim has also spent many years transcribing drum parts from iconic songs and drum solos, and his work has been featured by Zildjian Cymbals, Vic Firth, Drummer World, and the Percussive Arts Society as well as in numerous educational projects. In our interview today, we talk about his transition on being primarily a touring drummer to shifting his focus to education and recording. We also discuss the importance of staying true to yourself and why it's important to know your strengths and value as an artist. Let's get started. Tim, thank you for being on the show, and it's just great to connect with you this way. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So to begin, you've established yourself in Nashville as a freelance drummer and educator by initially following the traditional path often outlined to us through our own and others' expectations. But you've also managed to shift your focus, which has allowed you to pivot and establish a successful career that follows a slightly different path. So if you look back to when you were younger, what got you into music in the first place and what was your original intention? Mm, yeah, good question. So I don't I don't always love like diving into the whole backstory thing because I think that can like wear people out. So if you really want to know like where drumming started for me and stuff, I have a video on YouTube called Am I a Professional? Which gives a really deep dive into it pretty much exactly what you asked. So if anybody that's curious after you listen to this, go there. It does a much better job doing it than I could do it now. Um, but the short story is uh, I started playing when I was 10. I just would drum on tables and stuff like that. My parents got me this little electronic Yamaha drum pad thing because they were like, you like banging on tables? You might like playing this. And then I wore that thing out and then I got you know, a full drum kit around like later on when I was 10 taught myself for three years, then, you know, started taking private lessons, went to college, got a music degree, graduated college, toured full time for several years. Uh, and then I came off the road five, six years ago and kind of started doing all the stuff I'm doing now, which is 
um, recording drums from here, this studio, and then also, um, you know, the education stuff that I do, which is um, a little bit of Zoom lessons, a little bit of courses I've created, and uh, a lot of transcribing. And I've transcribed for like Vic Firth and Zildjian and all that stuff. I think the intention when I was young, um, I just like playing drums. And I always gravitated, it's funny, um, I always gravitated toward drummers like Dennis Chambers, Vinnie Caliuto, all these, like Jeff Picaro, all these drummers that like were kind of like studio people that kind of were in the background making records happen and able to do a lot of things. And um, at some point in high school, I was like, I want to be a touring drummer. And that's what I did for a long time. But all the drummers that I really was drawn to from a young age were all these like studio musicians. So it's funny that I like was dead set on touring for so long. It was the only thing I wanted to do. All through music college, I was like, I just want to play drums live, tour the world, do that whole thing. Um, And then after several years of doing that, I decided, you know what? (laughs) Maybe not. Maybe I want to, you know, for a lot of reasons, I was like, maybe I want to do something else. So I think the, the original intention was like, be a touring drummer, hired hand gun drummer. And then um, it's somewhere along the way it shifted to, eh, I'll try some other stuff. I think for me, because much like yourself, I, I went to post-secondary college to get a, a diploma in jazz performance. And in the traditional settings, there's a lot of f- formal structure and formal formal curriculum that they go through. They teach you the fundamental skills, they teach you the, the theory aspect of things, they try and develop your musicianship. But one of the things that's often neglected in these situations is how to be a musician or what the paths are available for people that don't just want to mm. play as a performer. They'll train you as a performer, they'll train you as an educator. Yeah but they don't necessarily train you how to be a studio musician. They sometimes don't even tell you that that's something that's available. You do a lot of transcriptions. One of the things that they don't tell you in a business and music class is, hey, you want to transcribe stuff? That can be a business thing. Totally. So I see value in post-secondary music education as a way to, first of all, determine if that's something that has an interest in you and are you willing to develop the discipline and the commitment to be a musician, and it tends to weed a lot of people out. Totally. Just making it through the program doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be suddenly on the right path. You took the touring path, as you said, that was something that when you were 10, that's what you were dead set on doing. But you pivoted now. And so now you're more in the education and the recording aspects, which is not something I find in a college situation that they generally really teach you the skill sets to do. And I know for me, one of the anxieties of being a a professional musician who's made a lot of changes over the years is being comfortable with the choices that you make. Because people expect, hey, if you're a musician, you want to play the bars every weekend, you want to go through and you want to tour, you want to do all this stuff because that's the stuff you're supposed to do. But when you start Mm. to find that that isn't fulfilling anymore, and then you start to dabble in other things, 
Um, it can fill your creative side and it can build some of your confidence. But at the same time, too, there's always that anxiety struggle of being able to feel like the decisions that you've made. Is that still an accepted choice? And can you still classify yourself as a successful music career because you have pivoted? And I know that's something that you've gone through in a lot of the choices Definitely. that you've made. So I was just kind of curious in terms of some of your perspectives in really just getting used to the giving up the touring aspect and kind of making those changes. Yeah, that's a great question. And that is kind of the topic I tried to tackle with that YouTube video I mentioned that gives kind of my whole backstory and where I'm at now called Am I a Professional? Um, because I think for me, when I started touring, I loved it for a long time. And then I really didn't love it. And it wasn't just because everybody will say tour while you're young. And to me, that really um, wasn't the issue. Uh, I never liked traveling. <laughs> uh, it wasn't, I was young and I liked it. And then I stopped liking it because I wasn't as young. It was like, I, I never liked it. What I was getting out of touring wasn't, oh, I love being in a new place and blah, blah, blah. I liked meeting new people. I liked seeing the country and the world. Uh, I liked playing music for different kinds of people in different places. Like, there was a lot when I first started touring that I really was experiencing for the first time and I really liked. The more I did it, the less those things were new and fun and exciting and the more they were just like, oh yeah, I've done this before. And that's not to take it for granted as much as it is like, like you were saying, it's not creatively fulfilling to play the same 20 songs in a new room every night, because even though it's a new room, it's it feels just like the other room, you know? So that was all happening while I was also, from a business perspective, starting to say, it would be really nice that if I want to go on vacation with my wife in August, I can just do that. But as a touring professional, whether you have like a kind of full-time with the same artist type gig or you're playing with this artist this weekend and then doing a two-week run with this artist and then whether you're hopping around artists or you have a consistent artist, like there is kind of this thing where it's like, we don't know what's going to happen in three weeks because that festival might come through. We might be support for so-and-so's tour that's starting and we're waiting on those dates to come through. So keep your August open. And that to me got really fatiguing because it's just like, man, I, I, I have some friends that like, they love the last minute-ness of mu being a musician. Like, oh man, I just got a call to do this. I'm flying over there and then I'm going to fly out from that gig and fly to this gig. And then we're taking a van to blah, blah, blah. And they like love it. They love the, I guess, the chaos of it all. I, I can't do that. I just literally am not a human built <laughs> for that kind of thing. So... That all on top of, I think for me, there was just like that part of my brain that loves transcribing and loves being philosophical about, you know, how to express your own voice on the drum set or whatever. Like just none of that was ever going to really get utilized just being a uh, hired musician for someone's band. So in that situation, it's not up to them to help me out of that. It's up to myself to help me out of it. And like you were saying, I did look back on my music college situation and 
You're right. There were a lot of things. I mean, I went to, I specifically chose Belmont in Nashville to go because they don't have a jazz program. They have a commercial music program. So it does try to incorporate like pop and country and CCM commercial Christian music and like all of the things that aren't just jazz. Um, So, you know, but even within that, we would have drummers that would come and give master classes and say like, if you want to make it in the music industry, here's how you do it. And uh, what it took me a really long time to realize is there is no musician that ever took the same path to get to whatever they call success because success isn't even agreed universally agreed upon as the same thing. Like, is it making more money? Well, for some people, yes. For some people, no. Is it, you know, just being able to scrape by, but only playing music that you love and feel creatively fulfilled by? Yeah, for some people, definitely. And for some people, no. So I kind of had to uh, come reconcile all of this and eventually say, I think I kept touring full time like for six months past when it was really, I knew I wanted to come off the road several years, several, like probably a year or two before I did. But there was like six months where I was like kind of miserable because I just couldn't bring myself to, like you were saying, like for me, it was like, well, what am I going to say when I go to a party and someone asks, what are you up to? It used to be, oh, I'm a touring musician and people would go, wow, that's amazing. And then when I stopped touring, it was like, well, what are you up to? What do you do for a living? Whatever. It it just kind of became, well, I, I transcribed drum solos for this company and I blah, blah, blah. Like it, it all just became a lot less sexy to talk about in like a kind of cocktail party type conversation. And that the fear of, cause Nashville is also like a word of mouth people, person town. And I was like, what, what happens if I take, I told myself I'm going to come off the road for a year and see what else I can do And if it doesn't work out after a year, I'll either go back to touring or I will just become a computer programmer or something. (laughs) Um, And that year was really scary because I was like, if I take this year and truly, I said no to so much stuff touring wise because I was like, I really have to figure out some other way. And I knew that if I was always like hopping back and forth between touring and trying to figure out something that wasn't touring, it would never work. And it was really scary, but it was ultimately worth it. I remember going back about 20 years ago, I was at a stage in my life where I started to get a little bit burnt out in terms of some of the opportunities that I was getting. Most of my work came from, you know, playing clubs, playing bars with multiple bands and doing the freelance thing. And I've much like yourself, I've I've always kind of gravitated more towards being kind of the the studio musician, the session person that comes in that's more or less sort of anonymous but a huge part of the project rather than being someone that always wants to be the center of attention or the front man but i found that i was exhausted and i got Mm. to the point where i had so many different projects kind of on the go and a lot of them were part-time so they sometimes they didn't work a lot and sometimes they all worked a lot at the same time i got to the point where i thought i'm doing a job and i'm providing a service to all of these other people and I value the service that I provide and they value that the one thing that I'm really not 
providing is artistic satisfaction and joy to myself. So I had, so I had made the sure. decision at that point. I just, I, I think I picked one night, I, I sat back and I think I called about, made about seven phone calls and I just kind of left a whole bunch of different projects and everyone was really understanding. And at that point I just, I took a part-time job working a retail job just so that I didn't have to worry about the money aspect so I can figure out what it was that I wanted to do. 20 plus years later, I'm still at the same job. It's now become a full-time job, but the the work that I'm now doing in my music career is far better than a lot of the opportunities that I had before, because now at that point I figured out, I don't want to be a musician that's in the clubs all the time. I would rather be someone that, you know, play plays sure. um, in a pit band for a musical or different sort of opportunities, because I love that type of work and I have a skill set to do that. And I love the, the fact that I have the freedom to say no, if I choose to not as a not as a disrespectful yeah. thing to the opportunities, but just as a, I've, I now have to learn that I'm an important factor into this. If I can go into a situation, yes, I appreciate the opportunity, but if I'm not feeling joy, then I can't feel that I'm really giving whoever's hired me my best. So I had to kind of take that step back yeah. and reevaluate. I've been a student of Dom Familiaros for a number of years, who has become a mentor to me. And I've had many conversations with him about the challenges and the struggles that you have with social media, always presenting everything that everyone's doing and how great everything is. And then you sit back and you go, okay, well, how come these people are getting all the work and no one is calling me? And then I realized at one point, the work that they're doing is the work that I decided 20 years ago, I didn't really want to do anymore. And I'm trying to put my energy into, into different aspects, but the whole social media aspect is not always a motivator, but sometimes more of a deterrent and a way for you to kind of question your commitments. So I was wondering kind of your perspective on finding yourself by not having to deal with the whole social media aspect. Mm. I mean, I think at this point, we all definitely have to figure out what our relationship with social media is. And I think the only real way to start charting a, a path in that realm is to really clearly define like, what do I want? And for me, it like it, you can say the same. Like I, I did a, I, I so I still do tour. It just is it has to be the right situation and the right music and all that stuff. And last year I went on these fly dates, and it was so funny when I was touring full time. Like similar to what you're saying, when I was touring full time, I would play certain festivals, and maybe I would be in a band that's playing the main stage, and a certain drummer would be on the side stage, and you know, they'd be looking at the bus that we had or whatever. And they'd be like, man, was whatever. When I did these fly dates recently, I flew in and like this artist, an incredible artist, incredible music. Um, you know, she's early in her career. So she's in a, you know, a 12 passenger van and these were fly dates. So I flew in and we would, you know, whatever. But I was at this festival and I was like, it's so funny. It's a similar thing. I was, I was there in some of these drummers that several years ago would, 
look at me and be like, I want to be on the main stage. They're playing the main stage. They're, you know, the ones that I'm there thinking like, damn, that would be kind of, that'd be nice to be playing the main stage today instead of this stage. And that's always going to, it doesn't matter what level you reach. That's going to be there, you know? Elon Musk makes enough money to satisfy any human, but he still wants to own Twitter and go to Mars. Like literally, go to Mars. Same with Bezos. Same with it, you know what I mean? There's never going to be, and I've listened to John Mayer talk about this a ton. You don't, you don't reach a point where then you're finally like, you know what? This is enough unless you really get in a quiet room all by yourself and define for yourself like what is enough because you'll always be able to look out and go man they have better mics than me oh they have a the... you're always going to be able to do that so until you get clarity about what it is you really want without all of that other chatter influencing you you're always just kind of going to be chasing whatever is like right in front of you and then i think for me with social media i try to engage with it because it's an important business tool, but I, I try to be very strict on the way in which I engage with it. I try my best to keep my screen time on my phone to under an hour a day, which is aggressive when I think the like average for most Americans is like three or three and a half hours or something. So if you want to spend more time on your phone, Amazing. Go for it. I don't, I truly don't care. All I know is I don't like it when I spend more time on it. So I don't want to, but social media is important. So a lot of what I've done around it is like built out a way to, you know, I don't edit videos on my phone. I do it on my computer. It's more efficient for me. It's easier. Um, And then I kind of just like build out a little timeline of like, I'll post in the morning, I'll download the video out of Dropbox, post it, and then I'm done. And maybe I'll check in later in the day and comment on whoever's left comments or whatever. But one of the biggest things that I did about to maintain my mental health on when I am on Instagram scrolling is I unfollowed almost every drummer that I followed. Um, and because to me, it, it just became, and I still follow certain drummers. Some, some of them are my personal friends, uh, but to me, it's a little bit like it's the confusing thing of being a musician and loving music are the same thing. So unless you like I try every day to listen to like two or three or four new albums I've never listened to before. And I try not to do it as a musician. I do it just to listen to it. If I really like an album or I really hate one of the albums that I picked to listen to, I'll dig in and go like, oh, why do I dislike this so much? Like what's going on here? Or if I really like an album, I'll go, oof, what, what is it that I love about this? But I try to turn off the part of my brain that's like, oh, what are the hi-hats doing? The 16th notes on the hi I'll bet you those are K custom. Like I try to put all that down. And it's the same with social media. I was finding it impossible to get done working all day thinking about some course that I was working on or some track that I just sent stims to someone for. I was finding it impossible to do that all day and then walk downstairs and get on my Instagram 
and just see someone posting a video of recording and not instantly go back into work mode of like, oh man, they're using this snare drum with this kind of reverb. I could have done that on the thing that I just did. Like I should be like, I just found it impossible to like truly clock out. So I just had to unfollow like most of the, <laughs> the accounts that I followed. For me, the biggest value that I have with social media is just building the community. With social media these days, you now have access to people that even, you know, five, 10 years ago, you never would have been able to access. And then just by expanding the community that you have is a great way to feel that you're part of something. Sometimes before everyone would have the things that they do and, you know, it's like, I do this, you do this, but you never really kind of interact. And now you can kind of share the things that you do with other people and that can encourage them. I had someone once say to me that if you're going to post something, because the tendency a lot of times is to see, you know, how many hits you get for something and how many likes and, and measure the analytics which can be important from a business aspect, but from a mental health aspect, you don't always want to get caught up into that. But what someone that had said to me once is if you have something to post, post it and know that even if it seems like no one has accessed the things that you post, there's going to be someone that did and the content that you have had value or the message that you had had value and someone needed to hear that. And that's why you do things. You don't do things always necessarily to get the most hits. You do things because you have something of value that you want to share with someone else that may help them through a challenge or may inspire them to do something else. I'm a fan a lot of times of kind of rough around the edge posts because that's the reality of the way musicians are. I like to see, you know, the little mistakes and things. I like to see the risks and things that people take because that's all part of the discovery process. As an educator, I know that something that you have discussed a lot with students is that people come in and there's two things. One of them is that they lack confidence when they're starting out, or even if it's something they've been doing for a long time. And secondly, they lack a unique individual voice. The tendency a lot of times with material and with some teaching curriculums is emulation. Here's the tools. Here's the things we want you to do. Perfectly recreate that. So what you do is that you learn how to be someone else and you get graded or judged about how good you are at being someone else. And often you're not encouraged to do your own thing and to celebrate your own unique voice. Ironically, because I've listened to a lot of podcasts that you have done. One of the things that you do for a living is transcribe note for note accuracy things of all of these different performances. And people really love getting a transcription of they want to know exactly what yeah. their heroes did because they want to learn that exactly. But you also state that's not the intention of the transcription. The transcription is it's a collection of ideas and you want to take that. You want to listen to the performance because without actually listening to the performance, the transcription means nothing because the paper doesn't tell you the intention. The paper doesn't tell you the feel. The, the paper doesn't tell you the dynamics, the articulation, the passion behind that performance in the first place. So what you always say is that you want to take the transcriptions, even yours, and you want to pick the things that sort of captured your imagination, the things that intrigued you, 
and explore off of that idea. The idea is never to kind of play the whole thing perfectly. The idea is just to get a reference as to something that someone has done and use that as a creative tool. So I was wondering if I can kind of get your perspective on that as well. Yeah, I mean, yes, I have definitely, um, I've had the thought many times of the ethics of me being the transcription guy, air quotes, uh, while me not truly believing that that's the end goal, like you said. And so a lot of the like transcription books that I sell now, I try to include a at least one video that says, hey, by the way, there are these transcriptions, but here are some bigger picture things. And here's a couple of things you can think about moving forward to kind of make these ideas your own. Because that's what I that's what I realized very quickly when I started transcribing. I couldn't really like fully read music until halfway through college. And the whole reason I got super motivated to start re- reading music well was twofold. It was one, I was getting asked to learn a lot of music really quickly. And I realized that the only way to truly learn like 40 songs in two days is to know how to chart and read charts. And the other thing was there were just certain drummers that I was listening to. Uh, One of them was Calvin Rogers, um, who just, I loved everything he played, but no one was breaking it down anywhere. So I just had to take it upon myself to figure out what he was doing. And in doing that, I, you know, I would very slowly at first transcribe some fill that he did. And then I'd go to my next gig or I'd go to my next recital or, you know, rehearsal or ensemble performance or whatever. And I would force that fill in there. And I would either realize like, oof, that was clunky. That didn't, that didn't really work that great. Or someone else I was playing with, like my great friend, best man at my wedding, uh, favorite bass player to play with on planet earth. We played a ton of shows in college together and he would look over sometimes and go like, do you, I don't, I mean, I, I get it, but do you really want to do it right there? And I'd go, Oh, okay. Yeah. This stuff isn't working. Like I, like I want it to. And it made me think, okay, maybe no one showing up to see me perform ever wants me to sound like someone else because that's literally no different than you memorizing like the first 20 pages of Moby Dick and trying to literally recite an entire sentence from Moby Dick word for word in this conversation right now. There's just never going to be a context in which that was the right call. (laughs) Regardless of how well constructed that sentence from Moby Dick was, it's never going to fit into this conversation as well as something that you in real time are thinking of and articulating because of what you've learned from Moby Dick or whatever. So, you know, to me, it's not that transcriptions are bad. To me, it's that transcriptions are not the final resting place for the learning process. They are one of the steps along the way because there's huge value in observing someone else's thought process of, wow, okay, they went from the snare to the toms like with this sticking and I never would think to do that. I always do it like this. And man, I should I should check out that idea and see what happens when I do that. Um, so yeah, I think that it's, it's super valuable. Transcription is super valuable, but 
and and like use it like you can you can still learn a 50 bar transcription of you know Brian Blade's drumming that's you're still going to get something out of that i did it in college but unless you take that next step which is okay cool those 50 bars got it tried to play it just like him now like you said what inspired me the most what stuck out to me the most it doesn't always have to be like what was the flashiest thing they did it literally could be wow their approach to ghost notes is totally different than mine i would never place ghost notes in these places let me check that out a lot of the students that i've had were young uh, beginner students they'd often come in and they'd want to learn a song and so we would use transcriptions that they would pull off on online, which were usually moderately accurate, but at least yeah. it was a, a it was a starting point of, to kind of get them playing music. For me as a teacher, I would look at a transcription as a way for a student to learn how to read, and I always saw value in that, even if it wasn't that they needed to be master their reading skills. Just by learning how to read, changed how you hear. Yeah. Totally. Because now when you listen to music, you can start to identify that weird hi-hat pattern that you see is really, once you see it on a sheet of paper, you realize, okay, wait a second, I know what that is. Now you can start putting the pieces together. Yeah. As a working professional, I have to know how to read because it cuts down my amount of time to learn material by hours. Cause I can listen to a song once or twice, jot down a couple of little things. I'm not, I'm not transcribing the whole song, but in 20 or 30 seconds, I can write out the two or three grooves that are in that. Then I can write out the, the fill that you have to play. Yeah. And there's other ones that you don't have to do. What I often tell students is that, if you're watching a show or going to a concert and the drummer is playing something and they're doing a fill and everyone there is air drumming to that fill, you have to learn that fill because it's a, it's a central part of the song. Yeah. After that, you have the flexibility to create and apply your own characteristics because learning something exactly like the record that is so completely different than your own personal style isn't going to make you sound like a better drummer. Taking the aspects that you learn that are essential for, for the music is important, but then feeling comfortable with those aspects and applying your own characteristics is first going to make you sound better. And secondly, make you enjoy the process more. One of my biggest heroes in my development years was Neil Peart from Rush because at the time no one really kind of played like that and I love I still love it there's something when I see him play and I hear that music that just excites me I've had the opportunity to play a lot of that stuff in some of the bands that I'm in and it doesn't bring me joy because I don't play like Neil Peart and I mm. and so I've played gigs where I literally have the transcription on there because I just want to make sure I try and get the feels as accurate as possible and I can get through it and there is value in that but there's not a lot of joy in them I would much rather play something where I can actually just be myself but I still love the skills that I've developed because I've learned how to take those transcriptions, build my reading skills and get me to playing the songs faster. So I love, I'm a, I'm a drum book guy. I, I just, I, I love them. I read them like magazines. My wife always knows I'm reading a drum book because the couch starts to shake because you're kind of tapping your foot and stuff. It's just the, the drummer <laughs> instinct. 
So I love the transcriptions, but one of the things that I often find is that you'll hear a song and then you'll see the transcription and the transcription can be accurate. But when you see the transcription, you listen to it, it just seems off because it doesn't have the mm. character of what the person has played. And you sometimes in your mind assume that it's a lot more complicated than what it really is. And so having that ability to look at it in front of you yeah. as an interpretation, I, I think is really important. And I admire that you have the discipline to actually put the time in to go through and make transcriptions as exceptional as the ones that you make available to everyone. Thank you. Yeah, I think that one of the things you just said, it hits on something that isn't often talked about, which you, you called it an interpretation. And that's correct. Uh, and I think that you also are talking about kind of like when it seems, there are times when the recorded performance and the transcription seem incongruent. And I think a lot of times that's because there's, there's a ton of different ways that you can notate something, that you can break up something. Sometimes it's something as simple as like how many measures are on a line can change the way a song feels or should you notate the song in halftime or regular time? Both are correct, but they can mean a whole world of difference from how it like feels on a page. And I think that that's something that, again, the same reason that that doesn't get talked about that much is the same reason that what you're talking about, like developing your own voice and all that stuff, all of this stuff is really hard to articulate and is really even harder to create a rubric that you can grade people by, which is why I think we don't do it. Um, because it's much easier for me to hand you a transcription and say, okay, Michael, go spend the next week learning this, come back, play it note for note. Great. You either did it or you didn't do it. But for me to say, hey, take this, spend the next week with it, come back, play me something inspired by this that sounds like your own unique voice. That's a much harder thing to provide a grade for because how do I know what you played if it's a different tempo with different stickings and blah, blah, blah? Like, how do I know that it actually came from the transcription? I don't know if it came from the transcription or not, so I can't grade you on it. And I think that that's something that I want more people to talk about because this is truly like, the, the more I get into it, it's like the only reason any of us should be playing music is to sound <laughs> like ourselves because it's the way that we're going to sound the best. And it's also the way that, you know, I think it will have the greatest impact on whoever's listening to us. Uh, because uh, if, if you're not comfortable playing big band jazz, I don't necessarily want to, like uh, the project Burning for Buddy was something that happened, I think in like the early 90s, yep. is that right? Some, something like that? Yeah, that and it was sounds this, right. For anyone listening who's unfamiliar, Buddy Rich, legendary big band drummer, jazz drummer, Played very fast. Technique is unbelievable. Uh, he's a band leader. This whole thing, legendary. There's these tapes online of him cussing out his band on the bus. It's great. Lots of fun stuff to love about Buddy Rich. Um, and in the 90s, they they did this project where it was like the Buddy Rich big band. But this was after Buddy had passed. So they had all these like legendary drummers sit in for a tune. And it was such an interesting experiment because some of the drummers they got were just straight up jazz big band drummers and they sounded very appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, and then some of them were not. And 
the the for the drummers that were not known for some of them were just straight up like rock and roll drummers and for those drummers it was interesting to see the choice they made like do i try to become a big band jazz drummer in this setting or do i just kind of like do my thing and people will get what they get and i think uh like neil peart his performance kind of interesting because i if I can recall, I think he goes pretty much like, let me try to big band drummer this. And it's not the most inspired performance, in my opinion. Whereas there were other rock and roll drummers that just kind of were like, I'm just kind of kind of play this as a jazzy rock tune as opposed to a rocky mm-hmm. big band tune. And I think it was the better decision. So I think that mm-hmm. that's the thing that you have to like we were talking about earlier with making a career out of music, like we were talking about earlier with being on social media, unless you get really specific about like, this is the kind of drummer I want to be, you're always going to be chasing someone else's thing. And that's never going to land for people as well as you being you. There's so many, and but the cost of deciding like this is, what makes me creatively and artistically the most fulfilled and I'm going to do it now. The cost of that is that means you might not be right for a lot of things. And so you can kind of either try to be the right person for everything, which oftentimes will not cause success. Or you can say, you know what I do? I do these three things. And it's kind of like the equivalent of like, if you are an air conditioning company, you should be an air conditioning company. You shouldn't be an air conditioning company, but also work a little bit on plumbing, also work a little bit on electrician stuff, also work a little bit on roofing. Like, because even if you can kind of get by on those stuff, like, are you really a roofer? Or do you work on air conditioning? And it's it it's funny because in music, it seems less obvious than when you, because when I say like, oh, if you're an AC company, you should just fix ACs. Everybody goes like, oh, duh. That's what air conditioning people do. And it's like, well, if you're a rock and roll drummer, you should just play rock and roll. And even if someone asks you to play on a jazz tune, you should give them the caveat of, hey, I'm a rock drummer. I will record on this song for you. It's not going to sound like Gene Krupa. <laughs> and, and if they say, you know what? That's cool. Let's see what happens. Okay, cool. Everybody has clarity and it's going to sound whatever. But, you know, I think that's a tough thing to do, especially like you're saying there, you can open up Instagram or YouTube or whatever. And this drummer is amazing at everything. But I've even heard people like, like Aaron Sterling is this legendary, very active current studio musician. He's like, yeah, I'm not the right guy for everything you would think. And I've talked to friends who have actually hired Aaron for stuff. And they're like, yeah, I mean, I think he's like amazing at what he does but that doesn't make him the right person for everything. Like he isn't the person maybe you should think of first for your speed metal album. He also isn't, although I think he could do it. I don't know if he's the first person I'd call for like a straight ahead quartet jazz album. I totally think he could do it because I know he's listened to a lot of jazz and whatever, but I don't, if, if it's between, for straight ahead jazz, if we're picking between Brian Blade and Aaron Sterling, I'm going Brian Blade all day, as is most of the world. And that's that doesn't mean either of the two drummers are lesser because of that. It means that they've both decided, you know what I do? This is what I do. 
one of the things that I find interesting is that the people that appear to dabble in different situations do it well, really, because they're really good at being themselves. And so you accept that what they do is done exceptionally well, because you just accept that that they are an amazing musician and you're loving what they do but if you listen to it in the context about not knowing who played on these things then you may start to second guess was it the right fit or not so i think a lot of times you um, you base your your perception based on how you feel about a certain musician not necessarily about the job that they've done within the context that they have and it's the same sort of thing with me doing studio work if i do a recording the first thing you hear on the playback is all the things that you didn't get totally. right all the things that you'd want to go through and you would want to change later on if i can listen back to a job that i got hired to do and not hear myself on the recording but actually hear the whole song then i know i did a good job because I think in the end, it really is about presenting the music and not really just trying to bring the focus on yourself. I don't like to play overly technical on recordings because I'm very dedicated to my practice routines and my skill set has improved significantly over the 40 years that I've been doing this. And if I try and do something really complex and really busy and then listen back to it later, those are the things that I don't like to listen to because I know I can do things better when I go into a situation and I play musically and I play the right context for the song, those are the recordings that I can listen back to and feel proud of because I'm hearing the collective music and not just trying to put myself into that situation to bring attention to me. And I know because you do an extensive amount of remote recording for people. One of the things that I also really admire about you is that you are really good at being a chameleon for different projects because whether you know some projects may be things that need programming so you're going to program stuff you don't always have the same sound on everything you look at the situation you assess and you're really into the exploration aspect of seeing what will happen so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your approach to recording when someone hires you for sure. their job I think one of the things you just said is the important thing, which is no one is going to listen to an album for the drums and the drums only, or at least I don't think they should. And I don't think that's why any of us got into music in the first place. I certainly didn't listen to my first record and go like, wow, the drum, mute everything. I just want to hear the drums. It was the, it was how everything added up. That is what made it. The thing, and another thing you said earlier was sometimes you look at a transcription and when you heard the thing, you thought, man, it's this complicated, beautiful, whatever. And then you look at the transcription and you go, oh, that's all they did. It had to be more. And I think that is the important, making music at the end of the day is mostly just high level decision making. And the recording process is kind of, in a way, people think in a way it's more forgiving because it's not happening in real, it's not a live performance necessarily. Sometimes you're live tracking and it is, but in a remote recording situation, technically you hired me to play on your song. I have all day to do 70 different takes of the song if I need it and whatever. 
But in reality, I think the people that are really good at recording are always have perfected the process of always keeping the song the focal point and only making decisions that work to make the song better. So when someone sends me a song, the first question is, I listen to the song and I get the overall layout of the entire song. What's the biggest part of the song? What's the quietest part of the song? And then from there, I can start to go, okay, maybe here, here's how I could build this song to emotionally fit the arc of the song. Um, like a client just sent me an email today, had this song. The, the demo drums on it were kind of like reverby in 80s, which is similar to, I've done like four other songs for this EP that they're going to release. Um, there's like sort of similar to some of the other drum sounds on it. But for this one, it's a very intimate, very sad song. And my first thought was, I think I feel like the drums shouldn't be reverby and far away, which kind of implies like epic and big spaces. Like when I need to have a very private, intimate conversation with someone, I don't go to like a reverb chamber <laughs> or like a, a loud dining hall. I go to like a quiet room so that we can whisper and I can cry and I can, you know, I, I don't have to, I can just focus on like, a, it needs to be intimate. And I was like, man, I think that these drums should be like played really quiet with the preamps turned way up so that they sound like, like right in your face because that's what the song kind of is. Like the song isn't a, a reverby swimmy thing. It's like a, I'm having a sad conversation about something. That to me is so much more important than what the drums are doing. Like, is it a kick on one and three, snare on two and four? Or is it a, like, if you don't get that first thing that I was just talking about, right? Just none of the other decisions you make really even matter. Because I think the particulars of what are way less important than why. And I think that if you can start focusing on the why in all these different situations, it'll really help clarify like what the right decision is. Um, so that's like the, I think one of the most important things is um, just always try, because like, again, I think there are a lot of drummers that don't program drums, don't deal with electronic sounds and things like that because they go like, I'm a drummer. And it's like, yeah, you can still be a drummer and program stuff. Like, it doesn't matter. It's still drums. You just didn't play them in real time. You found the sample and then placed it where it needs to go and then edited it to sonically fit in the environment. There's still a lot of producers that are amazing producers that aren't really that good at doing that because they're not a drummer. I am. <laughs> so whether I'm physically playing the drums or I'm sitting behind a computer programming it, programming them, I'm still shaping the like percussive element of a song. And that to me is about decision making and trying to make sure that whatever I'm doing is helping the song. And all of that has almost nothing to do with like what snare drum I'm using because who cares? Yes, And I think that's something that higher education and like the, the forums of the internet have really, really like, you know, and honestly, like um, 
the like the <laughs> marketing cycle of um, big companies and stuff. It's like I want to sell drums, so I need to tell people that so and so who recorded on such and such used this drum. You know, it's like that's everybody wants an acrylite. Because Acrolyte, oh, so-and-so played an Acrolyte on this. And, oh, you also got to get a Superphonic because John Bonham played that on blah, blah, blah. It's like, you can get those drum sounds with, I would say, at least 85% of the drums on planet Earth. It doesn't need to be those drums. Mm -hmm. But, again, it's much harder to come to terms with that and then start working on your ability to, like, tune any drum to sound like it should to fit into a musical thing, that is much harder and a much longer pursuit than just being like, oh, Steve Jordan used such and such snare drum? Okay, I'm going to go buy one. Well, and <laughs> sometimes a really high-end snare drum that's tuned really nicely, that sounds beautiful in a room, sounds terrible recorded. And sometimes the drum that you feel like you should just throw into the trash bin ends up being the perfect solution for some of the projects that you have. And so I found for sure. me, the real value about learning how to record was learning how to appreciate textures and to start paying more attention to the, the, the tools and things that are, that are available. One of the things that I did purchase from you before was your drum recording course, which I loved and I found to be cool. exceptionally valuable. And you also went Thank on you. to, produce uh, a course on for live gigging musicians, which I will be purchasing at some point to talk about the, the drum one. One of the things that you did is you basically have a series of things where you kind of start at the beginning where you're basically recording with an iPhone and then you go through, and then you add two microphones and then three microphones and you put things through a variety of situations. And the value that that has is that you learn how to pay attention to rooms and sonic characteristics and develop things and then realize as you add more you can build where sometimes if you just jump right into everything the problem is yeah. you haven't mastered anything and now you're trying to master all of the big solutions where you really need to go back yeah. start simply get comfortable with your situation because some rooms sound terrible i have a room here that i do all my recording in and it's a terrible sounding room but through experimentation and different mic placements and different dampening and tuning and stuff, I can get some pretty cool results. And when I give them to people that are really expert mixers, we get some really cool results, but it's all about just experimenting and taking that time. And you should sort of start out with less and master less rather than going and buying everything. Because the problem usually is that when you invest all your money and all of the different gear, you end up owning a lot of gear that you never really use and you haven't taken the time to develop the skill set. And I know that that's basically kind of your path through that. You started simply and you expanded as you went. Definitely. And I think your course does an exceptionally good job of that. So Thank it's you. definitely a highly, highly recommended and something I refer back to frequently. With the live gigging package, you talk a lot about working with the SPDX uh, thing in terms of samples and getting that sort of mm -hmm. set up, which is something I'm going to be getting into at some point. And when I do, we will definitely connect. I'm going to pick your brain on that. But one of the other things that you also talk about in that course is the the business aspect of being a musician. And we're getting close to the end here, so I don't want to kind of get into it all, but if you had a couple of quick little tips that you could offer to someone 
from a business standpoint on trying to be uh, a, a live working musician, what would that be? Go buy that course. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I mean, one of the things I feel like when I was in music school is, you know, wanted to be a live gigging musician. So in, well, I think the first thing I would say is if you're just starting out, you should, as much as you humanly can, take any opportunity at all, period. It doesn't matter if it pays nothing. It doesn't matter if it pays great. It doesn't matter if it pays somewhere in the middle because the most valuable thing that you have is experience. Like I listen to all these, yeah, I listen to all these NBA podcasts all the time and these people that have been in the league, won championships, all this stuff are saying the biggest thing that the NBA is doing wrong right now is not enough teams have veterans that can help the younger players, both business-wise and like, you know, trying to get to the playoffs, make a playoff push, get to the finals, like that whole thing. Like there's so much more to basketball than just being young and fast and athletic. There's this whole, how do you pace through an entire season? It's 82 games. That's a lot of games. There's some games that you need to give all your energy to and win. And there's some games you got to, okay, guys, let's barely just, Let's barely win this one, but try to save it because we like there's all this stuff that only experience can teach you. So I think when you're first starting out, you should take every opportunity that comes your way because you, you don't know what you don't know. And any experience at first is good experience. And then the more you do that, the more you get out there, the more that you play, the more people you'll meet, the more people you meet, the more gigs you'll do. And then as things start rolling, there comes a time where you go, huh, okay, I got five gigs this week in town. Two of them don't pay. I can probably drop those. That's a lot of time. That's two days where I'm going to have to go downtown and unload stuff and, you know, kill time and buy dinner somewhere because I don't want to come back home. Like, there's a time and a place where you'll naturally, because of the kind of work you're getting, the volume of work you're getting, you go, okay, maybe it's time to only take gigs that pay a certain amount now because, you know, the old price that I was thinking just isn't quite right or whatever. Um, so that would be a f the first thing. And, and the other thing is, I think as a musician, I went to music school and no one ever really talked about show pay and how you should calculate that. There was always like, I would ask around people that were like a couple years ahead of me and they'd be like, oh, you should charge this for a gig. And, and I've, been, I've been to several college campuses and done like masterclass and, and <laughs> this question comes up in different ways and I always answer it very vaguely. And I think some people think I'm just trying to like not talk about how much I get paid, but that's not really it because I just, I don't think that anyone should be thinking about any one gig as just like, what's your flat rate show pay? Because not all gigs are created equal so to me personally, it doesn't make sense to have one rate that you charge everyone. And I, if you really talk to people that are out there working, they don't have one, they might have an ideal number and sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower, but there's very few people that are like, you have to pay me X dollars and without that, I'm not doing it. There's always a little bit of wiggle room. And there's also always, you know, to me, there was never someone that like clearly defined like why you should choose this magical number. People say like, oh yeah, like around this is pretty good show pay. And you just go out into the world thinking, okay, great. But to me, think about what your time is worth 
and factor that into how much of your time this gig is going to take. To me, doing a fly date in California, which is like a two and a half day deal to fly out there, you know, settle in, play the show, fly back the next day, two, two and a half day deal. Sometimes you do two nights if you're going all the way, like, you know what I mean? That's a way different commitment than playing downtown at 6 p.m., playing for an hour and driving back home. So there's no way that I should have a, that I should think about those things as the same thing. So, and, and similarly, you know, just really take stock into how much something actually takes of your time and have that factor in. Because like maybe you're just getting into recording at home and you're going, I need to charge a couple hundred bucks for these tracks or whatever you're thinking because you think that's how it should be done. Well, just ask yourself, like, how much time is it going to take you to record for this person's song? If you're fast and efficient, you know, maybe you work at a coffee shop, they pay you $15 an hour or whatever they pay you. Let's do $10 just because it's very easy to do that math. Coffee shop pays you $10 an hour. A person reaches out to you and says, hey, can you play on this track? I only have 30 bucks. Well, that's three hours of your coffee shop situation. Can you do it in less than three hours? Probably, which means you get paid more to do that person's track. And someone you'll talk to, another musician, will go, $30 for a recording? That's terrible. And like, yeah, it's not great, but you just, you. this is your second song you're recording at home. Again, that's a different situation than me, who it's not my second song I'm recording at home. And, you know, my situation now is different than when I first started. Like I was recording on people's stuff for free for a long time. And then, you know, you start to convert some of those to paying people. That stuff helps you actually get new people that are like whatever. But it's it really consider how much time is going into something and what your time is worth. And let that be a bigger kind of compass for what you do and how you do it than what some random person who doesn't know your situation thinks. I have a friend who hires me to do a lot of work for him because he does a lot of film scores and, and different sorts of things as well. And then, and I remember he sent me a message and he said, I have this track I need you to do. It's 90 second free jazz inspired drum solo that needs to match this uh, scene in this video will will you do this um unfortunately there isn't a budget and literally i'm like absolutely i will do this because literally it took me longer to turn on my computer and send him the files than it did for me to actually do the track because i literally set up the video i watched this 90 second video i improvised a free jazz drum solo over top i let it go for another 10 20 seconds and then i did it again and then i exported out the file and i sent it to him and said okay this is an idea let me know where you want me to go with this and i'm happy to make any changes he's like no it's good half an hour later he sent me a mix and it ended up in this feature film and now i'm doing some other projects with him that pay much better because he knows that i can get things done quickly and i'm gonna do exactly what he asks me to do but if there's times when he wants you know feedback or a different approach i can do that but sometimes there's a time frame involved totally and so if he needs something done i can get it to him 
sometimes within a couple of hours of getting the message. So it all depends on the quality of the work that you do and the efficiency of the work that you do. Totally. And I, and just like you're sorry, just like you're saying, uh, I heard Aaron Sterling say this once and I was like, man, that's brilliant. But you went back to saying like, how are you a chameleon? How do you fit in the songs? Aaron Sterling, someone asked him about, you know, how he thinks about show pay and he was like, or how he thinks about like what he should charge for recording and all that stuff. And he's like, you know, as far as like when someone thinks about your free jazz thing you did, they think like, they think about the performance. But like you said, that was the least time consuming part of the whole thing. And I think someone asked Sterling, like how long does it usually take you to get through a song? And he said like, well, most songs takes me, I don't know, 12 minutes to record them. And they were like, whoa. And he was like, I mean, think about it. I do like three takes of a song. The song's four minutes long. It's like 12 minutes. It's not why people are paying me. They're paying me for all the other stuff that I do that isn't the playing. The song is the easiest part. And specifically with recording, that is very true. Like deciding which drums to use, how to tune them, how to mic them, you know, what needs to be programmed, what doesn't, the percussion that needs to go along to marry with the drum set part, like different layers to do, giving people different takes that have, you know, certain fills in this section and a certain groove in this section that's different than the take two, which has different fills there and a different groove. Like that all takes way more thought and effort than I I can play. Most songs that are in a pop format are not going to be the challenging part of recording at home. Well, you know, and you can have a number that you consider to be your value, but you don't have to always tell people what that is. You're often better off to ask what their budget is. Let them tell you what they can afford to do, and then you can start to decide how much value it is to you. There are times when I've given someone a number, and if I let them give me a number, I would have made twice as much money. And there's other times when you end up making less. Um, so it really sort of depends on the, on the situations. Yeah, I would honestly, I think the way that I, and this could all change tomorrow, but I think a lot of times what I, the way I'm trying to approach it now is like, I have a number. And they say, hey, can you play on such and such song? I'll say, hey, yeah, here's my number. This is what you get for it. Um, let me know what you think. You know, I'm always, you know, I can always try and make stuff work, let me know. And if they come back with a different number, I at least established that first number where the next project that rolls around, especially if they liked the work I did, which hopefully they do, they'll go, "Mm, you know what? Tim does charge a little bit more than someone else, but I really liked what he did last time. And he was willing to figure it out, work with me on the budget I had. So let's do it. And the other thing that I did, which I learned on my podcast, I had this artist, Daniela Mason, on, and she does a lot of, like, production. And yeah, I remember um, the episode. Yeah, she's great. And one of the things that she said is when you send an invoice, when you've got, given a discounted price to someone, you should put that on the in- invoice. And ever since then, any invoice I've sent someone where, you know, maybe I took 50 bucks less than what I usually do or whatever, I will notate that. I'll list the full price. I will make an itemized thing of, you know, friends and family discount or whatever. Because I I do want that person to know this is an exception to the rule. This isn't the rule. Um, and I think there's a, there's a weird way to do that. 
where you come across as like, I don't get out of bed for a certain price, but done in a tactful way. And most of pay negotiation is all about the tact in which (laughs) you (laughs) navigate it. Um, Done in a tactful way, it really can establish like, man, this, like I've had like just a couple of weeks ago, I had an artist reach out and they said, hey, can you do this in-town show, blah, blah, blah. This is the pay, two rehearsals, whatever. And I came back and I said, thank you so much for reaching out. I really appreciate it. This music's super fun. Um, you know, w- my with with my current rate, this is just really below it. Um, is there a, do you, you know, I understand that budgets can be tight, so I totally get it. If not, do you think there's a middle ground or, you know, can we whatever? And I actually told in the response, I told her, hey, this is the number you offered. This is what I would normally charge for it. Is there a way that we can get to a, a middle ground? Um, and she was like, unfortunately, there is not. <laughs> the, the, ca- the, the chasm is too wide. But I really appreciate, she literally said, like, I really appreciate you being clear and knowing, like, your worth. Um, hopefully, we'll play together in the future. And the only reason I say you should be specific is because I have actually recommended people. There was a piano player um, that I was doing some sessions at a studio in town and it's a big like commercial studio and the artist was like flown in from Canada and this whole thing. So seemed really fancy, but it's actually an indie artist that like the budget was pretty tight and the producer just had like kind of a hookup at this commercial studio. So, (laughs) um, the day or two before the sessions, the producer was like, Hey man, do you know anyone that could do piano overdubs like live when we're um, tracking and then do overdubs from their home play, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, I know a guy, he's great, like whatever. And I think what happened, because I knew at this time the guy wasn't super busy. And I think what happened is he saw the kind of studio it was, saw the kind of artist it was, or at least what it looked like on the outside. And he said, man, my day rate is going to be, I mean, the number he asked was insane. And he didn't get the gig. Because he was trying to milk it for everything that he thought he could get out of it instead of just saying, you know what, I think my value is this and I'm going to do that. And I think, you know, I've definitely, I've absolutely been in scenarios where I have said like, oh man, you know, the project's going to be expensive. It's going to be blah, blah, blah. And they're like, okay, great. Sounds awesome. Send the invoice. And I'm like, oof probably could have charged more. But I decided my numbers because I said, in an ideal world, this is what my time's worth. If someone gives it to me, that's what I decided my time was worth. So it's tough because, you know, you want to make as much money as you can. But I think knowing your value and sticking to it is the a good long-term philosophy. I I once read a quote in a book that said, if you give someone a number for a job that you're doing and they're really happy with the work that that you've done and they're really happy to pay you for the work and you are resentful because they're paying you, you didn't charge enough money. The flip side of that is that if you also feel incredibly guilty and they're paying you for this stuff, you probably overcharge and somewhere in the middle is there. So it's really easy to undercharge. But like you said, it's really important that you kind of see your value so that 
you feel committed to something. Sometimes there's things you don't want to do. So your rate goes up and then suddenly if they're willing to pay it, then you're a little bit more open to the experience, but you don't want to get involved in something that you're not passionate about just to make a few bucks as well. Totally. As we're kind of coming to the end of this, if people want to reach out to you or learn more about you, what's the best way to connect? Yeah. Um, I'm everywhere. Uh, uh, Tim Buell music, T I M B U E L L music.com, uh, kind of has a little bit of everything. I have a contact page on there. So if you want to actually like send me an email or whatever, you can go there, do that. I also have a bunch of courses and free stuff and free videos and a bunch of stuff on that website. So you can poke around, um, and there's samples of like stuff I've recorded on in that whole world. Um, and then as far as social media goes, you can go to Instagram. I'm at Tim Buell, T-I-M-B-U-E-L-L. I'm on Instagram, posting stuff there. YouTube, youtube.com slash Tim Buell. Um, that'll all get you there. And I also have a podcast called Your Good, Get Better. Um, I've had a bunch of some of the people we've talked about today I've had on. It's a fun podcast. I try to get as like, try to capture as much not just total drum nerdery as I can. So I try to stick to like trying to bring everything as full, well-rounded life as I can and not get so specific about the type of drum head I used and the whatever. So um, if if that's of interest. I love the podcast, by the way, and I've listened to every single episode. So wow. so it's something that I, uh, I definitely appreciate and I always look forward to new episodes as well. Wow, that's kind of intimidating. <laughs> In closing, is there any things that you have coming up this year that you're particularly excited about? Mm. Well, I'm just about to put flooring in right now. (laughs) The studio is carpet. I'm going to put flooring. It's flooring is in the next room over. It's here. Um, So at some point, I'm going to take everything out of here, paint, put in flooring, uh, and then I will have a... the it will look like a brand new studio and also sound like one. Um, I'm super happy with the sounds I get in here now, but from a a visual and audio aesthetic, I want something different, something that looks a little more just when you see it, you go, oh yeah, studio, got it. So hopefully that will accomplish that. So that's exciting. And then other than that, um, I don't know. We just got a sectional for the family room. Amazing. I highly recommend it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. It's a great way to motivate you to keep doing all the creative work that you're doing. Man, it did kind of change my life how much better it was than our previous situation. I was like, man, I was not convinced when my wife said we should spend this amount of money on a sectional. I was not convinced. But I am now. I'm a believer. Um, But no, musically, I think, you know, just kind of doing doing my thing, trying to record as much as possible. And uh, I would say if you're listening and you're a musician, you want to get better, I think you should listen to more music. I think not enough musicians listen to enough music. And I'm not talking about you should keep playing that same record you love over and over again. I'm talking listen to new music and listen to as much stuff as you can And when you're listening, don't just try to think about what do I like? What do I don't like? See past it a little bit. Critically listen. Ask yourself, like, if you don't like the song as a whole, ask yourself, what about it don't you like? And then there's, got it, there's 
five, six guitar parts going on in that song, there's got to be one of them you do like. There's got to be. It's just not possible that, you know, there's so much that goes into making a song. And I think most music, you can find at least one or two elements that you enjoy. And working on that skill will take you very, very far as far as your musicianship goes, which is, I think, a much more valuable thing than your drummer facility. I 100% agree. So in closing, I just want to say it was absolute pleasure to connect with you. We will definitely be connecting again. I'm going to reach out because I have some stuff I want to pick your brain on. And I hope that 2023 is a fantastic year for you. And we'll be in touch soon. Awesome. Yeah, same to you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Drummer's Pathway Podcast. Please share and subscribe to get the word out. And let's keep the discussion going. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next time.